You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. It's now open God's Word to the Scripture reading this morning. Leviticus 16, verses 29-34. to This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or an alien living among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord you will be clean from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance." The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and all the people of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. This morning we're continuing with our series on the book of Mark. This will be the tenth sermon in that series. And we've come to Mark 2, verses 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting? but yours are not. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Beloved congregation, Christ our Lord, If you look at uh, your Bibles over top of the passage we just read, there's a subtitle which the NIV has inserted, Jesus questioned about fasting. Obviously, our text for this morning is about fasting. Now there's a subject that we don't hear too much about. In the broader culture, sometimes if we're Paying attention to the news, we'll hear about the fasting of Muslims during the time of Ramadan. Perhaps sometimes people have to have a 12-hour fast for medical tests of one sort or another. But aside from those things, fasting is something of a curiosity in Canadian culture. And it's certainly that way in our Canadian Reformed subculture as well. Maybe there are a few people who quietly fast, but it seems that religious fasting is regarded as strange or unusual in our churches. For whatever reason, 
Many of us seem to think that fasting is fanatical. Strangely, this is despite the fact that the Bible speaks about fasting in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in this sermon, we're going to look at one of those New Testament passages, and we're going to hear how the Lord Jesus answered a question about fasting. In the last passage we looked at, Christ, you may remember, was attending a banquet at the home of His new disciple, Levi. And it has to be emphasized that this was a festive meal, much like many of us are going to be enjoying today or tomorrow. There was plenty of food for everybody. All the trimmings were there. And people would eat, and people would drink until they were stuffed, until they were satisfied. And that sets the stage for what we see happening in our text this morning. Mark tells us that the disciples of John were fasting, along with those also who followed the Pharisaical teachings. First thing we have to do here is notice the contrast. Jesus and and His disciples, including His his new disciples, are, are feasting. But all these others are fasting. They couldn't nab Jesus on who He chooses to eat with. So now they they jump on Him for the fact that He is eating. And not just eating, but feasting. While many others are fasting. And not only Him, but also His disciples. That's the first thing we have to note. And second, we have to look a little bit deeper into this phenomenon of fasting. In biblical times, fasting was understood to be simply not eating or drinking for a a set period of time. For instance, in 2 Samuel 12, after the incident with Bathsheba, David fasted and he wept for the child who had become ill. He simply wouldn't eat, wouldn't drink anything. And then we're told that after the child died, then once again he would eat and he would drink. So when the Bible speaks about fasting, it's not speaking about abstaining from TV or from hockey or from some other such thing. It's simply about not eating and drinking. In the Old Testament, God's people were commanded to fast, but only on one occasion. That was on the tenth day of the seventh month. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. We read about this from Leviticus 16. Every Yom Kippur, the Israelites were to deny themselves. And when it says deny themselves, that includes fasting. It's another way of saying that they were to fast. There were other things involved as well, but fasting was definitely included. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, was the day the Israelites were corporately cleansed from their sins. The fasting was a part of that. The fasting was a humbling reminder of the seriousness of sin and the significance of this day. This day was not to be taken lightly. And this was the only regular time that the Israelites were commanded to fast by God. Of course, as we 
survey the, the rest of the Old Testament, we find occasions as well where kings and others commanded the people to fast as well, especially during times of crisis. But those were exceptional. They were special occasions when situations demanded it. The only regular commanded fasting was on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And we come back to Mark 2, obviously it's not Yom Kippur. So why are the, the followers of John and the Pharisees, why are they fasting? Well, during the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, what we call the intertestamentary, intertestamental period, the character and frequency of fasting began to change. In the Old Testament, fasting was only for one day per year or as otherwise commanded in times of crisis. It was connected with humility and showing a contrite heart. That's sometimes also why you read about sackcloth and ashes being connected with fasting. But in the intertestamental period, during the, the time that the Pharisees became the leading religious group, fasting became something that had to be done at least twice per week. So if you wanted to be a good Jew, you had to fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Mondays and Thursdays. And moreover, that this fasting had become a way to earn something from God. Get God to notice you and to notice how, how pious and religious you're being. It was regarded as meritorious. When you were, a, when you fasted then as a Jew, you were not only a good Jew who met all the expectations of your culture, but you were also earning favor from God, getting in good with Him. Now, of course, none of this was commanded, none of this was taught in Scripture. This was something that had developed and had been added to what Scripture teaches. Soon enough, it was taken for granted that if you were a seriously religious Jew, this is what you would do. That's why the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. That's what they did as good Jews. And this expectation was what led to the question in verse 18. You may remember that in our, our last passage, in verses 13 to 17, the Pharisees didn't speak directly to Jesus. But here, whoever it is that is asking the question does speak, in fact, directly to Him. And it appears to be a genuine question, not the sort of snarky, veiled rebuke that we saw in verse 16. Some people are genuinely baffled by the fact that Jesus and His disciples don't seem to fit the picture of good Jews. So they ask this sincere question. How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Well, the Lord Jesus answers with three illustrations. Let's look at each of them in turn. First one we find in verses 19 and 20. There he uses the illustration of a wedding feast. As he does so, he asks his own question. And in the original, it's clearly marked as what we call a rhetorical question. 
the answer expected is, is obvious. It's obvious that the question expects a negative answer. So it's something like, it isn't possible, is it, for the guests of the bridegroom to fast while he is with them? When you have a wedding feast or party, it would be obviously completely inappropriate for someone to be fasting. A feast is a time for rejoicing. Fasting, on the other hand, is connected with sadness and mourning. A feast is a time for eating and drinking. Fasting has no place at a feast. At the very least, it would be highly unusual for someone to do that. Some, some might even consider it to be rude or to be impolite. As long as the bridegroom is there, as long as the party is going on, the guests are going to celebrate. And in verse 20, the Lord Jesus says that the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. That, that will be an appropriate time for fasting. Now, we're going to come back to that verse in a few minutes and look at that in a little bit more detail. Now, let's carry on with the two other illustrations. Verse 21, the Lord uses the illustration of a, of a piece of cloth. He says that no one takes a piece of unshrunk cloth and uses it for a patch on a piece of old clothing. If you do that, you only go from bad to worse. You end up with a worse tear than you began with. It's only appropriate to use pre-shrunk cloth on an old garment. See here the question. The question is, what is appropriate? What fits? That's the connection between this illustration and the one preceding. Just like unshrunk cloth is inappropriate for patching up old clothes, so fasting is inappropriate for a wedding feast. In verse 22, he drives the point home with one last picture. And this time it's a picture of wine and wineskins. When wine ferments, as you may know, it releases gases that exert pressure on whatever container it happens to be in. Wineskins were leather bags that were used to hold wine. Old wineskins would already have been stretched to capacity by fermenting wine within them in the past. Now, if you took an old wineskin and you put new wine in it, the new wine with its gases would expand the wineskin further, and what would eventually happen? Well, it would burst. In other words, here too, it's a question of what is appropriate. New wine demands new wineskins, just like unshrunk cloth demands New clothes and a wedding feast demands feasting. It's only appropriate that the disciples of Jesus feast while He is with them. This is what's entirely appropriate and, and fitting at this particular moment in history. With Him on this earth, the disciples couldn't fast. His presence is that like that of a, a bridegroom at, at the wedding feast. This is the, the joyous feast of the promised salvation. How could anyone fast at this moment? It simply wouldn't fit. That's sadness. That's mourning. It doesn't belong. But the Lord Jesus 
says there is a time coming when fasting will be appropriate. And that brings us back to verse 20. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. The pressing question for us today is, what is this time that Christ was speaking about? Is today that time? Or did He have something else in mind? To answer that, we have to remember the character and nature of fasting. A person doesn't fast because he or she is filled with rejoicing. already noted that in the Old Testament, fasting is connected with sorrow and, and mourning. And especially mourning over some serious sin or over the death or illness of a loved one. Given that sort of context for this practice, we can't help but think of the death of the Lord Jesus here. In fact, most commentaries and study Bibles will tell you that this is definitely what Jesus was referring to. The time for fasting would come when He died for our sins and when He was in the grave. And sure enough, when we read about the disciples during the three days He was in the grave, we get the, the sense that they were very sad. And though we don't actually read that they were fasting, it was common, common for Jews to spontaneously fast during times of sorrow. So we would expect the disciples of the Lord Jesus to have fasted during this time. However, as we all know, He didn't remain in the grave. We praise God for that. On the third day, He rose again from the dead. He joined His disciples once again, and they were glad to see Him. And we're told in John 21 that one of the first things He did with them after meeting with them, He had a meal with them. He had breakfast with them. The time of fasting was over. He remained with them for 40 days. And He taught them more. And then He left them again. He ascended into heaven. But His second departure was not like His first. He left His disciples with promises. The promise of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. He promised them that He would always be with them. He promised them that He would return. And that's why after His ascension, Luke tells us that the apostles returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were in the temple constantly praising God. Not a hint of sadness there. Here too, it was not a time for fasting, but a time for rejoicing and a time for feasting. In the early days of the apostolic church, there appears to have been a belief that the Lord Jesus was going to come back in their lifetimes. He wasn't going to be long. However, as time went on, the church came to realize that while He could come back at any time, He didn't meet the expectations of at least some in the early apostolic church. Believers came to recognize that while He was still present with them through His Holy Spirit, there was a sense in which the bridegroom had been taken from them in His ascension. 
believers began to realize that we live in an in-between time. An in-between time where we long for the fullness of redemption. When it comes to the presence of the bridegroom in this age, there is an already, but not yet. And this is part of the reason why eventually we see the presence of fasting in the early church. You can read about that in the Apostolic Fathers. Well, let's put this in a way that speaks for us today. Today, we have the presence of Christ with the Holy Spirit. He is our Emmanuel, God with us. And we live after Pentecost with all its blessings. Let's not undermine that or undervalue that in any way. It's a true and it's a comforting thing to know and believe that Christ is with us. He is with us. However, we also have to acknowledge the reality that the wedding feast of the Lamb is not here. It has not yet come. The reality is that our lives are a constant back and forth between the house of mourning and the house of rejoicing. One week, perhaps we're celebrating a birthday, and the next week we're at a funeral. Back and forth throughout the whole course of our lives. That's the nature of the age in which we live. Now, I wish it was a simple matter of just saying, you know, today is the time for rejoicing because the bridegroom is with us. That's not the full picture. If you want a, a technical theological term for that, we call that an over-realized eschatology. Over-realized eschatology. Eschatology being the doctrine of the future things. We need to be real and biblical. The reality is that today for Christians, there are also appropriate times for fasting. The reality is that the bridegroom is not yet with us in the fullest sense that He has promised us in His Word. For instance, in the book of Revelation. And so we have a longing for His return as we live in this broken and sorrowful world, as we live in this veil of tears. So today is the age of feasting and fasting. How do we know which is appropriate at any given time? Obviously, you can't do both. But we can take our cue from the Bible itself and especially from our text. We already noted a connection between fasting and death. In fact, many of us will find that fasting often comes naturally and spontaneously with the grieving process. People have a hard time eating when they're grieving, especially in the early days of a sudden devastating loss. You don't have to tell people who are grieving to fast. They often, they, they just do it. And that will also apply to heartfelt grief over sin. If we are truly sorrowful over some serious sin, 
we have sorrow in our hearts that we have offended God and we've hurt other people, you might expect fasting to be naturally connected with that. You might also know that in the, in the back of our, our book of praise, we have a prayer for days of fasting. This prayer is a confession of sins. It's meant to be used by the whole congregation in public worship on days of prayer in times of crisis. And so there too you see a connection between humbling, repentance, and fasting. Given all that, the one thing that needs to be made clear is that there is no command in Scripture for us as New Testament believers to fast. This text does not command us to fast. Christ is not saying, you must fast. This is important for everyone here to understand, so I'm going to say it again loud and clear. The Bible does not command us to fast. In fact, there are some people who definitely should not fast. Ever. Think, for instance, of those who are diabetic in different ways and to different degrees. Fasting for any meaningful length of time could be life-threatening. Think also of those who have struggled with or who currently struggle with disordered eating. Fasting could plunge you back into or further into bulimic or anorexic patterns of eating. This is something that every believer has to consider for himself or herself. We don't have a command to fast, but we do have the sixth commandment. And that includes not doing harm to ourselves. If our fasting is a form of self-endangerment, we're hurting ourselves, putting our lives at risk even, it's forbidden. In fact, fasting could be sinful. Again, the Bible does not command fasting. In our text, the Lord Jesus expects that a time is coming when His followers will fast, but He doesn't command them to do so. The Lord Jesus is discreet and He's careful in this area and we should follow Him in this. We have the freedom to fast and many times we will spontaneously do so, but we do not have a mandate. You know, and in this way, fasting is not like prayer. Prayer is clearly commanded in God's Word. The Lord Jesus commanded His disciples to pray. And the apostles, likewise, in the epistles. The Lord Jesus did not command Christians to fast, and His apostles didn't either. He expected that they would, but His expectation does not have the character of an imperative or a mandate. From what we read here in Mark, we know that the Lord Jesus simply knew that His followers would do this. Today is an age where there are times appropriate for feasting and times appropriate for fasting. And when we know that the time is appropriate for fasting, and we know that we can fast, that we're not going to endanger ourselves by doing so, we need to take our cue from what we read in Scripture, particularly from what we read in this text. 
The fasting here has to do with the bridegroom. In our theme for the home visit season this year is derived from Hebrews 12.2, which speaks of fixing our eyes on Jesus. And when it comes to fasting, there too, we fix our eyes completely on Jesus, on our Savior. And part of what that means is that we fully recognize that fasting has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with earning any favor or earning any merit from God. Fasting is categorically not a way to salvation. It's simply a response. It's something that happens in the area of our sanctification where Christ leads us to sorrow, humility, and brokenness. Whether that's over the presence of death and illness and destruction in this world or, or over the presence of sin in our lives. It's something that happens where God creates in us a deeper longing for the fullness of redemption at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Through fasting, we are led to more and more direct our thoughts and faith to the bridegroom and we eagerly look for His coming with the clouds of heaven. And if we do fast, the teaching of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 6, 16-18 also needs to be remembered. There He told the people of God that when they fast, it's supposed to be a private matter. Not something to be advertised. You don't hang it out in the breeze so that everyone can see how pious you are, how religious you are. No, the Lord was clear that fasting, if it is done, is to be done in secret before the Father, not before men. And finally, anytime we talk about some element of Christian practice, we need to remember that it's not the Gospel. We don't find the good news as such in not eating and not drinking. Fasting. We're not commanded to fast. But you know, we are commanded to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. We find the good news in Him. And so what does this text tell us about Him? Him whom we are called to believe in. Well, we saw that God's Word reminds us here this morning that the bridegroom was taken from His disciples. He was taken to the cross. He was taken by death so that we might live. He was taken that we might be accepted by God and nevermore be forsaken by Him. We also saw that the Lord tells you here this morning that He was taken not just once, but twice. He was taken a second time. That reminds you that He is in heaven at this very moment with our flesh and blood. He is interceding for you at the right hand of the throne of God. He's your mediator who speaks up for you and who defends you. You're safely in His eternal care. Our text also teaches us that this Savior, your Savior, is coming back. Over these last few weeks, this Advent season, we've been remembering His first coming. 
Well, we do that with an eye to His second coming as well. He will return. Whether we feast or fast in this present age, we know that the age is coming when there will be nothing but feasting. Fasting will have no place whatsoever in the age to come. All our hopes, dreams, and expectations will be fulfilled when the bridegroom enters the banquet hall to join his bride. Then we will feast forever. What a glorious day it will be. What a glorious feast we can look forward to. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, which again reveals Christ Jesus, our Lord, to us. We thank You for the Bridegroom. We thank You that He died for us and took all our sins upon Himself. We praise You that He is at Your side interceding for us at this very moment. We thank and praise You for His presence among us today through the Holy Spirit. But Father, we long for Him to be fully with us. Today we walk by faith, but we want to see Jesus face to face. We look forward with eager expectation to the marriage feast of the Lamb. We do that especially when the brokenness and messiness of this world weighs down on us. We experience the effects of sin and death in our lives, and Lord God, we're so tired of it. Lord Jesus, come quickly to redeem Your people fully. We pray that You would come again with the clouds of heaven to bring us to our inheritance with You in the new heavens and new earth. We pray that You would return, that You would put an end to all fasting, and that You would introduce eternal feasting to our senses. Lord, Maranatha, for the glory of Your name, we pray. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.